This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. If you drive a few miles north out of Jefferson Township, along Berkshire Valley Road, you'll hit the Hamburg Turnpike, known locally as Route 23. It's a modest highway, two lanes in each direction, but it has stoplights and jug handles rather than overpasses, so it's not the most efficient means of travel. And if you're not familiar with New Jersey jug handles, to go left, first you have to go right, it's, it's kind of maddening. Route 23 is, however, one of the main east-west routes through extreme North Jersey, from the Pennsylvania state line until it merges with Route 202 just outside of Patterson. From the northern terminus of Berkshire Valley Road, again, just a few miles from the Sullivan home, a right turn under Route 23 will have you within a few hundred yards of the exit for the most haunted road in America. I'm Brandon Morgan, and this is The Devil Within. Episode 3, A Spellbound Palace. Clinton Road is a winding, desolate 10-mile stretch of asphalt and concrete running south to north that connects Route 23 and the Warwick Turnpike and the small community of Upper Greenwood Lake. The New York State Line is only a few miles beyond that. But it's Clinton Road that the brave and curious have traveled for years, seeking the ghosts and demons that have been reported to be lurking in the endless forests. The first thing you notice if you drive Clinton Road at night is the complete darkness that surrounds you. There are no light poles at all, no telephone poles, definitely no stoplights, no infrastructure at all that would lead you to believe that should you go missing, you'd have any chance of someone finding you. During the day, it's a different story the abundance of nature and wildlife draws hikers and outdoor enthusiasts from all over the Northeast. Part of the reason being that Clinton Road itself delineates the eastern border of Weiweyanda State Park, which is a popular destination for hikers and for black bears. But Clinton Road is famous for other reasons. Ghost stories, ghost sightings, ghostly encounters. And it all started with a rich man and a dream. By the winter of 1988, Cross Castle had been an empty ruin for more than 30 years, its three-story stone walls standing eerie and defiant against the slowly encroaching forest. Originally constructed by capitalist Richard J. Cross in 1907, he lived in his splendid home for only two years before his untimely death. His third wife wasted no time in abandoning the home on several hundred acres of lush New Jersey forest for the more comforting confines of New York City. At least there, she'd be able to, you know, see other humans. Anyone. Because on the Cross Estate, there wasn't another soul for miles in every direction. Also, he didn't name the castle after himself. The name Cross Castle was started by locals years later. 
The entire estate, consisting of the main residence, several outbuildings, two barns, stables, and a private lake, was named Bearfort, apparently out of respect for the most plentiful residents of the area, the American black bear. Richard Cross emigrated from England in the early 1870s and hoped to find his fortune in the burgeoning banking industry that flourished in the receding tide of the Industrial Revolution. His first wife died in 1876, and as was custom at the time, he proceeded to marry his wife's surviving sister. But that marriage was also short-lived, with a second wife dying just three years later. Mr. Cross was left with his work, his children, and his ever-growing fortune. He was among the wealthy elite and a father of six when he met and married his third wife, and he wanted nothing more than to leave behind the stress and pressure of the city and disappear into the countryside. His children were grown and either away at school or off seeking their own fortunes. Mr. Cross's desire to escape into the woods was kept secret from his young wife. He wanted it to be a surprise. In that venture, he was largely successful. She only learned of his plans when one day he suggested an excursion across the river into the wilds of New Jersey. She agreed. It was only a day trip after all. However, they soon found themselves in the middle of a vast field of rolling grass, framed on all sides by pristine hardwood forests, and her beloved announced that everything she cast her gaze upon was hers. The land, the trees, the rocks, even the sun and the stars. As he spoke, he made sweeping gestures and proclamations worthy of a king, including his promise to move a mountain in order that she may live like a queen. And he did just that. The castle he would construct on the land he now stood upon was built entirely from the abundance of native stone contained within his property. The elaborate woodwork and cabinetry that would one day be on display in his house was to be crafted from the trees now within her sight. As the reality of her husband's proclamation sunk in on the third Mrs. Cross, she began to feel faint. She saw the perfect reality of her penthouse on the Lower East Side with views of the newly constructed Brooklyn Bridge, her status among the socialites and the bon vivants, the ostentatious display of wealth that she so coveted. She saw all that slipping away on a sweet spring breeze in the North Jersey wilderness. Turns out she really did faint, and that was a lucky break for her. If she'd remained conscious, she may very well have spoken her mind and alienated her husband during his proudest moment. But after she was revived, she had time to gather her thoughts and ultimately to hold her tongue. She had no other options. It was either the country estate in Jersey or back to the factory floor as a seamstress, and that was simply out of the question. But the reality was she hated Bearford. And much to her credit, she never participated in the wild stories and conjecture that slowly seeped out of the local community regarding Mr. Cross and the strange goings-on at his vast estate. Some speculate that her refusal to corroborate any of the more fantastic stories stand as evidence that none of it ever happened. But another way of looking at it is that once the man was dead, her refusal to discuss any aspect of his life, his interests, or his home was the only way to make sure his secrets died with him. The construction of Bearfort was such a massive project that virtually every craftsman that presented himself or herself at the construction site was hired immediately. Hundreds and hundreds of masons and carpenters, 
laborers, architects, engineers, farmers, even the occasional shyster and faith healer. All were welcome if you were willing to put in an honest day. But with all those strangers, secrets became impossible to keep secret. Not that Cross was intent on keeping anything under wraps. On the contrary, he was immensely proud of what he was creating. But there were soon whispers about his curious lack of organized religious activities. Given the tent city that sprouted up that housed all the workers, it was generally expected that a preacher would be provided to ensure that a level of temperance and chastity prevailed until work was completed. That simply wasn't the case. The locals who were religiously affiliated soon dubbed the estate the Devil's Den and would often send someone to spread the word of God whenever it was learned that a new group of workers had been hired. The only people ever turned away at the Cross Estate were the uninvited brandishing a holy Bible. The main question that seemed to dominate any discussion regarding the very existence of Barefort was why Mr. Cross chose those particular 400 acres to call home. Was it as simple as the land's close proximity to Manhattan, a fact that would draw residents to the area for decades to come? Or was that just a cover for a deeper, more sinister reason for his choice? Because, as explained in an earlier episode, as close as the region was to the greater metropolitan area of New York, it was even more isolated. In the decades since the death of Mr. Cross, it has become more and more evident that isolation is exactly what he desired. Exactly how Tommy Sullivan got to Clinton Road is unknown, but nevertheless immaterial. The fact that he spent time there is what matters for our purposes. The drive from Tommy's house would take less than 15 minutes, but Tommy didn't have a license. And as evidenced by how quickly he crashed his father's car on the night of the murder, he didn't know how to drive. He could have ridden his bicycle there in under an hour, and all the neighborhood kids rode their bikes just about everywhere. The question remains as to whether he went there alone or with Lance, and if he was invited or not. It seems highly unlikely that he would have been an invited guest to the various rituals of the weekend worshippers. They were, more than anything, scared of being caught, or worse yet, exposed. So it stands to reason that Tommy went to the woods of Clinton Road and made his way to the empty shell of the once proud Cross Castle purely out of curiosity. However, he found something that he had never intended on finding. Something terrible and ancient and permanent. He was simply too young to realize what he had wrought, and it quickly became too late. It's doubtful he was even aware of what had happened, of what was happening to him. It is believed that Tommy only went to the grounds of the Cross Estate twice, each time in the middle of the night, each time with Lance. There's a police report of two underage kids in the back of a car, supposedly being driven by one of their older brothers. You'll remember that neither Tommy or Lance had an older brother. That report was dated just after Thanksgiving of 1987. Whether he was driven there or rode his bicycle is again immaterial. It should be noted that none of the persons of interest in the case who were of driving age ever admitted to driving Tommy to Clinton Road or anywhere else. Assuming that those two underage kids from the police report were Tommy and Lance, they must have seen enough to want to go back because the second time it's believed that Tommy was there occurred just before Christmas only three weeks later. That incident, as the local police called it, an incident, involved a disturbance in the woods near the ruins of Cross Castle. 
Apparently, there had been a small explosion caused by the improper use of various materials related to satanic worship. There had been a few high school-aged kids parked in a car nearby who witnessed the immediate aftermath and reported it to the police. Their statement was very strange. Between 10 and 12 adults, dressed in dark cloaks and masks, emerging from the woods, some still putting out fires on themselves and others. The witnesses, the high school kids in the car, were terrified at the sight, and they quietly drove off without the people who came out of the woods on fire knowing that they had been there. However, as these high school kids were leaving the site, getting back to the main road, they saw two boys, teenagers younger than they were, struggling to get away from the castle grounds. They drove right past them, but then the driver thought twice and wanted to help. By the time the driver of the car turned around to help them, the two boys had disappeared. One of the people in the car added that it appeared as though one of the young boys was assisting the other to walk. He was, in fact, nearly carrying the other boy. Assuming again that these two young boys were Tommy and Lance, we can surmise that whatever happened in the woods that night was the event that started Tommy on his path to murder. It was December 22nd. In just 17 days, Tommy would do the unthinkable. What could possibly have happened? Richard Cross died in 1917. Construction on his impressive home had been completed just two years prior. But what transpired in those two short years would cement the reputation of Mr. Cross as well as his mysterious estate. As the army of carpenters and masons were packing their tools to leave the grounds of Barefort, a select few were asked to remain to undertake an additional construction project. Winter was approaching, and so the ice harvest on nearby Lake Apacon would soon be underway. In the time before refrigeration in private homes was widespread, there was no more profound a display of wealth than to offer ice to your guests during the grueling humidity of a New Jersey summer. But that required an ice house. Ideally a subterranean structure, an ice house was used to store large blocks of ice, which were then packed in sawdust, and then more blocks of ice were stacked on and around the original blocks. Then more sawdust. This process was repeated, and the result would allow large quantities of ice to remain frozen and be enjoyed throughout the year. The ice house on the cross grounds was dug out of a hillside near his private lake. The lake was a beautiful and placid body of water named Hank's Pond. The walls of the ice house were lined with stone, and it boasted a reinforced timber ceiling. The several inch thick deep sawdust floor provided the ground level insulation necessary to keep the ice adequately cool. An interesting feature of the ice house was its near invisibility. The craftsmen responsible for it used the natural materials of the hillside to adorn its facade and entryway, so it all but blended in with the surroundings. If you didn't know exactly where it was, chances are you'd never find it. It was a quiet, hidden sanctuary, tucked away within the larger, but equally quiet, hidden sanctuary of the Cross Estate. It was from the workers who remained to build the ice house that we get the first strange stories about Mr. Cross. Those few men were witness to the gatherings in the grand ballroom on the first floor of the castle. Scores of guests in formal attire, live musical entertainment, the finest of gourmet foods, and since this was a full three years before Prohibition, Tennessee sour mash whiskey by the crate 
It must have been an incredible sight. A who's who of the northeastern elite, dancing and drinking and gorging themselves. Awash in the light of hundreds of candles that mirrored the stars above, the stars that were long ago promised to the lady of the manor. A lovely scene, to be sure. Sadly, that was nowhere near the reality of these gatherings at Cross Castle. There is no direct evidence to confirm or even to suggest that Richard Cross was a Satanist. There were, however, several beliefs and customs that he brought with him from Europe. To use a broad term, he practiced paganism, which is simply the belief in and worship of many different gods. Not unlike the Native American tribes that once flourished in the area of the greater Delaware Valley and north into eastern Canada. They worshipped the god of the hunt, the god of the harvest, the sun and moon, the four seasons. Everything the Native Americans encountered in nature and couldn't fully explain, they attributed to a higher power. And they decided to hedge their bets in case those capricious deities just might be listening to their pleas for mercy. Over the years, the practice of paganism has been vilified in the temples and churches and mosques of the great Abrahamic religions, and for obvious reasons. Paganism offers no revealed truth, no eternal reward, no need for absolution. It's all about the here and now. How you live determines how well you live. While the monotheistic faiths have a curiously negative opinion about sexual relations in general, and the female form in particular, paganism loudly celebrates both. Also, churches associated with the God of Abraham always seem to need money with the collection of tithes being openly lobbied for, or more often, demanded. With paganism, money never enters the equation. On the surface, it just seems a lot more fun without any of the consequences. Plus, you get to wear costumes and maybe see people naked. The depth of your investigation into the practice of paganism will directly correspond to how freaky things can get. Much like Satanism, there are weekend warrior types who are just along for the ride, but there are also committed practitioners who hold sincere beliefs in things like astrology, alchemy, sorcery, and witchcraft. The deeper you get into paganism, the more overtly the beliefs begin to trespass on areas usually reserved for the occult and the paranormal. Mythical creatures, astral projection, interdimensional travel, demonic possession. Right, it's not just a Catholic thing all the way up to and including the idea of ultimate communion with nature through the practice of human sacrifice. A lesser but still highly regarded method of communing with nature was the sexual congress between two or more, often many more, partners of any gender. So we have pleasures of the flesh combined with an active pursuit of phenomenon that lie at the extreme outer edge of human understanding. It's no wonder that the men who built the ice house at the Cross Estate had such incredible stories. So incredible that they were widely discredited and dismissed as the rumblings of former employees with an axe to grind. But again, what was so special about the woods of North Jersey? The first stories that were widely circulated and generally accepted regarding the strange happenings along Clinton Road began in the 1950s. By that time, post-war America had an economy that could afford and an industrial infrastructure that could produce automobiles for nearly every family that desired one. The urban sprawl of New York City had begun, and New Jersey was a comfortable place for families that worked in the city but lived in the country. Families 
kids who would become teenagers, teenagers who wanted freedom. And freedom was achieved behind the wheel of a car. And so, for the first time in over 30 years, Clinton Road had become frequently traveled. And so began the legend of the most haunted road in America. Anthony D'Annunzio was a 17-year-old high school kid who spent all his free time working on his 1939 Buick business coupe. The year was 1954, and although Anthony didn't know it at the time, he would go down in local history. It was a hot summer night, clear and humid, with the symphony of crickets and tree frogs filling the air. Anthony would later claim that he was just out for a drive so he could roll his windows down and get a breeze to try to cool off a little. A resident of nearby West Milford Township, he turned off the Hamburg Turnpike onto Clinton Road and was instantly pleased that the road was deserted and had long, straight stretches of asphalt interrupted by sporadic and dangerous hairpin turns. He also recalled two bridges that crossed a narrow stream, the ruins of a medieval castle, one pair of phantom headlights, and a monster in the woods. As Anthony D'Annunzio was enjoying the cool summer breeze through his greasy pompadour, he noticed far behind him a set of headlights cutting through the darkness, and they were gaining fast. Anthony sped up just for the fun of it. He'd been working on his car all summer and wanted to open her up a bit. He doubted he'd see the headlights again until he made the turnaround in Warwick and began heading back. But amazingly, his next glance in the rear view told him otherwise. The headlights weren't fading away. They were gaining even faster. Too fast for any vehicle he had ever seen or heard of. He could feel panic starting to take hold as the headlights charged after him. Less than 100 yards behind him now, with no sign of slowing down, Anthony had nowhere to go any more than a few feet off the paved road and he would be in thick forest. At his current speed, that was a death sentence. He couldn't go any faster, and if he slowed down at all, this maniac in the car behind him would slam into the back of his car and that would be that. Then something happened that would live forever in local legend and send teenage thrill seekers to Clinton Road for generations to come. The headlights that were chasing Anthony D'Annunzio's 39 Buick covered the final hundred yards between them in less than a second. Anthony was sure he was moments from death, and had he not had extensive experience behind the wheel, he very well could have been. The headlights, as stated, went from a hundred yards back to right on his tail in a heartbeat. But they didn't stop there. The lights kept going through his rear window, directly through the inside of his car, right past his face, and out the windshield, where they hovered for a moment, then split in two and disappeared into the woods on either side of the road. This is where Anthony's driving experience saved his life. The moment he realized that he wasn't concentrating on the road, but instead on the incredible event that had just happened inside his own car, he realized that he was speeding right into one of the hairpin turns that Clinton Road is famous for. He was going too fast nearly out of control, but he was able to stay calm and perform a controlled skid. He came to rest just off the main road on the edge of the forest. His car was still running, his own headlights cutting a penetrating light into the darkness of the woods. Anthony blinked. 
What the hell is that? Is all he remembers thinking before finding first gear and getting out of there. If the phantom lights that tried to kill him weren't enough, then without a doubt, the thing that prevented Anthony from ever driving Clinton Road again was the monster he saw lurking in the woods immediately after. Half man and half deer. That's what Anthony D'Annunzio described seeing that night in the woods. And he made sure to explain it wasn't like a centaur, which has a clear biological distinction between what is beast and what is man. This was just a lot of both all over. Four limbs like a man, but with hooves where feet and hands should have been, covered in fur, a face that was more human than deer, but with stubby antlers or, I don't know, maybe horns on top of the oddly shaped head. The only thing that wasn't completely clear in the recollection of Anthony that night is perhaps the most perplexing. As he was hurrying to get his car in gear and speed off, after seeing the creature in the woods, he gave a final glance over his shoulder and he saw the monster flee. Not to the left or right, not a retreat deeper into the forest, but up. He thinks he saw it fly away. Anthony D'Annunzio may have been the first teenager who came back from Clinton Road with a ghostly story to tell, but he certainly wouldn't be the last. Richard Cross arrived in New York City in 1874 as an avowed paganist. He soon met like-minded people who both buoyed his beliefs and expanded his understanding of the limits of those beliefs. His conclusion was that there were no limits. As his fortune grew, so did his tireless pursuit of answers, gleaned through his near-complete transition from pagan worshiper to occult practitioner. His most immersive area of study concerned geography and how it relates to different aspects of paranormal occurrences. At the time, the world was only 20 years away from the accepted reality of the most famous of these geographic anomalies, a patch of the northern Atlantic Ocean where aircraft and ships at sea completely disappear without any warning, without any distress calls, and with alarming frequency. The Bermuda Triangle. Others would soon follow. The Mothman sightings in West Virginia, the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, and many more that were connected to a larger geographic location instead of a person or a house. It is widely believed that Richard Cross bought those 400 acres just a few miles from Jefferson Township because he believed it was a place where he could experience the darkest and most profound possibilities that his beliefs would allow. After surveying and purchasing the land, Mr. Cross booked passage for England for a sabbatical abroad. He had three months before construction was to begin on his new property, and he wanted to be prepared. The purpose of his trip was to collect as much literature as was possible that dealt with a variety of subjects that were incredibly dangerous to even inquire about. The mere possession of some of the volumes he sought would be enough to land him in jail. However, Cross was determined, and it appears very successful in his pursuits, for he returned with over a dozen trunks full of books, scrolls, artifacts, and paraphernalia that would adorn the libraries and sitting rooms of his new home. Ancient tomes from Romania and Greece, Chinese texts with accompanying translations, Latin works that appeared to be scripture but were decidedly not, druidic carvings that had been transferred to parchment via chalk rubbings, 
instruments of war, daggers and swords, chalices and jewels that had value far beyond their monetary worth. And all of it locked away in a castle in the woods until his death, when it was either destroyed by fire, if it appeared to his widow that it may be illegal, or donated to local entities if it was merely a book or a candlestick. Their use was never fully explained or understood, but it only took two years for a once healthy and vibrant man to meet an early death. The first murder was reported at Barefort in the spring of 1918. A Polish immigrant who had been contracted as a stonecutter described in great detail one of the now infamous celebrations on the estate grounds. It was during the vernal equinox. Though the man reporting the crime had no idea of the relevance of the date, it is nonetheless extremely important. There are three other sacred days on the pagan calendar, the autumnal equinox and the summer and winter solstices. What the stonecutter described to local authorities was the celebration of Ostara, a ritual that announces the horned god who dwells in the forest to the spring maiden who emerges from a lake. The maiden then submits to the god in order to renew and rejuvenate nature. In ancient times, when this ritual was contained among only a handful of early Anglo-Saxon tribes, it is written that the woman who represented the maiden in the ritual was sacrificed, for it was believed that, owing to the awesome power of the horned god, the birth of spring was released upon the land immediately after conception, and the vessel, the maiden, was no longer necessary. For centuries that followed, in the more civilized parts of Europe, the woman was replaced with a rabbit when the time came for the blood sacrifice, and the woman would be ceremoniously exalted and worshipped, and would eventually choose a man from the crowd and indulge in a public consummation of the rites of Ostara. This man, the stonecutter, described the ritual exactly as it would have happened. The candles and torches, the pentagram in the middle of the floor, the capes and animal masks, the chanting, the simulated violence that represented spring breaking loose the bonds of winter, even the rabbit. But then he claimed to witness a beautiful woman remove her clothing, be willingly led to a large table, also adorned with a pentagram, have her feet and wrists bound with rope, a blindfold tied around her head, and then he swears he saw a hooded man brandish a large dagger and thrust it into her belly. The investigation was futile. No leads, no other witnesses, no victim or murder weapon. And given the sheer size of the estate, the police weren't exactly sure they had searched the correct room. But apparently, even a minimal amount of exposure to the local authorities was enough for Mr. Cross to curtail future celebrations. And as a result, things were very quiet at the estate. That is, until December of that year, when, after a lavish Christmas party, again in the main ballroom, the teenage daughter of a New York socialite went missing. The story given to police was simply that the young lady went for a walk around the sprawling grounds, alone. Every person at the party, and the guest list had over 150 names, every single one gave the exact same story. The girl's family had the will and the means to demand a full-scale investigation into the disappearance, and they got one. But it turned up nothing. The girl was never found. Although no charges were ever filed, nor was there ever any evidence of a crime committed at Barefort, 
there was enough suspicion for Mr. Cross and his estate to be of serious interest to local authorities. But ultimately, it wouldn't matter. Mr. Cross would be dead and his castle abandoned in less than a year. But the stories of the extravagant rituals would persist through the generations so that decades later, when a fringe movement of satanic worship would seep into the suburbs of New York City, the followers would again claim a particular patch of forest to call home. And this time, counted among them would be a boy of 14 who never could have known that the real danger in the woods wasn't the ghostly lights of legend or the monster lurking in the shadows or even the handful of his fellow Satanists who were truly dangerous. The real danger to young Tommy, in all likelihood, was the very ground itself. On the next episode of The Devil Within. Tommy Sullivan was a wrestler in a wrestling school, in a wrestling county, in a wrestling state. In fact, New Jersey is often listed as one of the few states where high school wrestling is a more popular sport than high school football. He was fast, he was strong, and he was disciplined on the mat. He also wasn't afraid to put the work in. This is my friend Dave Esposito. He grew up in Jefferson. His family lived down the block from the Sullivans, and he was a competitive wrestler starting in the fourth grade. He knows firsthand the commitment required, the sacrifices, and the pressure to perform when you're a wrestler in New Jersey. So I thought when someone said, I should, we should maybe go to wrestling, I literally thought it was uh, going to be like back then the WWF. I had no idea what it was. Yeah, it was definitely something that we dealt with. Uh, again, at the time, you don't realize that you just want to be the, the best that you could be. And we know, looking back, talk about sacrifice, you know, during the high school years when, when people are having fun and going through growth spurts as a wrestler, my gosh, you just, uh, at least I was dedicated to it, and, and the team that we had was really good. And so, to your point, a lot of dedication in terms of diet and um, and training. So you're not really going to parties. You're not doing that normal social stuff. You're you're just focused on uh, on making weight, being competitive. And uh, it, you know, I don't I wouldn't trade it for the world because I think it forms who I am now as an adult. But during looking back to your point about stupidity of, of putting on a rubber suit and going out for a jog to try to make weight and that kind of nonsense of course was was not healthy at all from a physical standpoint mentally though it makes you a really tough person The Devil Within is a Cavalry Audio production, written and directed by Brandon Morgan. Original score by Monkey Mind Music Group. Original music by Bruce Whitkin. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Brandon Morgan.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.